Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Money in the Mind. I'm Aaron, joined by my friend Andy. Hello, Andy. Hello, Ron. Today we are talking about money scripts and we are still in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak and we will probably talk about how that might impact some of our money scripts, but we're going to dive right into it today and discuss what is a money script. We all have them. We all have beliefs that we hold about money. So what are they? What types of correlations or associations might they have with certain behaviors? How can they help us, hurt us? Where do they come from, etc.? Absolutely, Ron. So yeah, money scripts, basically what they are is those little things that play, those little, per se, scripts that play in our head when we you know, are faced with anything dealing emotional with money. So if it's a big purchase, if it's buying, I mean, really just anything. So money scripts are just those, um, golly, I'm just, I'm trying to think of a better word to use than just scripts. You know what I mean? Beliefs. Beliefs. Uh, Un- like unconscious kind of just things that you do. Be- you do things because you have these unconscious beliefs surrounding your money. Or you can have many, many other types of scripts not surrounding money. They they influence your behavior oh, yeah. because you have this subconscious, just internal belief um, mm-hmm. about something. Right. So, right. so like a good example, a non-financial related script that I know a lot of patients that I work with, especially our depressed population, they have various scripts that run in their heads, such as I am worthless. I'm not worth it. Uh, nobody likes me, uh, yada, yada, yada. And those are real things that they tell themselves or they truly believe. And those are the scripts that we then in therapy, we try to attack and we try to rewrite those scripts. So it's, I am worth it and I am good and I can still improve. And even when I do fail, that's okay. Anyway, so money scripts, they come from a whole slew of different things, Ron. I mean, we're talking, a lot of them could be learned in childhood. So the way that you see your parents use money, the way that you see your grandparents use money, those things that your parents tell you. And we've talked about it in the podcast before to where a better thing to tell your kids other than we can't afford that and then they see you spending money on other things is this isn't a priority right now. Mm -hmm. So... Well, there's some applicable things of how to do it, right? Anyway, so you know, we we have these things that are learned in childhood. Sometimes they're they're just partial truths. I think there's a little bit of truth to some of those things, which is why we believe them. Um, a lot of the times that they're like we said before, they're passed down from generation to generation. So just a couple generations ago, we had the depression era people, which you still see that now. So if you see people that tend to hoard things or eat or drink expired food or liquids. It's because at one point in their life, they were told by either their parents or they experienced it personally that, hey, we don't know when our next meal is going to come. And those, and it's, it's, it's just very interesting, Ron, don't you think, that you have these people that have experienced such incredible 
um, I want to say fortune because so many of these people that are now like frugal and like hoarding, you know, they, they experienced a really good economic boom through the, you know, what, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they, so they've seen what it's like to have, but they still hold on to these very intense money scripts, which again is why we want to talk about today. So they are also responsible for our financial outcomes. And then, like you said, they're typically in unconscious. They're associated with our income, our net worth, our credit card, and other debt, the way we financially behave, and then other aspects of financial health. Run. That's correct. And one way to, I think, to look at them is money scripts can be a way that we construct a narrative for ourselves. They help us make sense of the world, even if we're not aware of the specific underlying money scripts and beliefs or just general scripts that we hold. Even if we're not aware of them, our brain is constantly trying to simplify the world around us because given how complex the world is and sometimes how random things are in the world, your brain is constantly just trying to figure out, okay, how can I make this simpler so that my mind isn't you know, going in a thousand different places and creating some really, really intense anxiety and many, many other potential issues. And you absolutely couldn't have said that better. We are constantly trying to add structure to chaos, which is one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of anarchy, because even in anarchy, people are still trying to make sense of what is going on. I mean, no matter what, there there is going to be some sense of structure that comes out of chaos. And yet you're absolutely right. We're constantly trying to make sense of things. We're always trying to make it simplified. We've said it before and we'll continue to say it again. People are constantly trying to avoid pain. Nobody wants to experience discomfort. And so, and, and what's, what's even, what's even more interesting about the human brain. And I, I had a, I had a professor who I respect beyond all belief. She always talked about how so picture picture an egg, okay? Just picture like an egg and then picture yourself in that egg. Now, in that egg is everything that you know. Everything that you know, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's comfort, whether it's uncomfort, everything is in that egg, okay? And even though a lot of those things in our in the in the egg are really bad for us, such as really bad money scripts like you know hoarding or um, overspending, they're what we know. They're what we're comfortable with. And in order to change those things, you'd have to crack that egg and see what's out. But then you deal with the unknown. Well, what if the the outside of the egg is even worse? Or you know, and so you are a hundred percent correct. We try to make sense of the world by simplifying it, even if it isn't good for us. Yeah. And you have to try to kind of strike a balance, I think, sometimes, because there is a way in which the incorrect things that we tell ourselves, unconscious or not, they can actually help us mentally, even if they're not true. You know, we've talked about locus of control. The greater your internal sense of control over the world around you, sometimes the better outcomes people have just in their minds. You know, the people who have a strong internal locus of control, even though it's not objectively true that you can control outcomes in every situation, sometimes randomness does play a huge, huge role. The higher people have an internal locus of of control, athletes are a really great example. They demonstrate 
as high of an internal locus as you can see because they blame outcomes on themselves. They blame good things or they, they credit themselves sometimes for the good things that happens and blame themselves for bad things that happen in a sporting event. They tend to have, you know, less stress and anxiety, not not in every case, that's overgeneralizing, but if you have a higher, a higher internal locus of control, think you can control more outcomes, that generally is associated with less internal and mental type of stress. However, that's not objectively true. So we want to kind of try to strike a balance here with, okay, money scripts might help us make sense of the world, but they can also lead to a lot of dysfunction. So how can we how can we kind of bridge the gap? What how do we strike a balance with what we tell ourselves that that helps our brain not just be so overexposed and be so stressed by all sorts of stimulation and whatever else we see around us? How do we bridge that gap and find a way to talk to ourselves, have maybe healthier scripts that we tell ourselves or say this script doesn't apply in every situation? bridge the gap so that we strike a fine line between what helps us mentally and is a closer reflection of reality. Absolutely. And so I want to, I want to go off this a little bit, um, I, not to derail it, but I work with a lot of addicts. So I work with a lot of substance use, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a various amount of drugs, which alcohol is a drug. <laughs> anyway, let's just throw that out there. But so many addicts that I work with that acknowledge that they have a problem because there are there are easily two different kinds of addicts. There are addicts that don't acknowledge that they have anything wrong with what they're doing, even though their entire lives because of their substance use is deteriorating around them. But those ones that do acknowledge that they have a problem, if you talk to an addict and you, you, you know, a lot of people look at addicts and they're like, well, just stop drinking, like just stop drinking. The way that they drink or the way that they use is a method. They hate doing it, but it is the easiest way for them to feel like they're gaining control of the world around them. They acknowledge it's completely irrational. And so when when I work with addicts, it's all about rewriting that narrative. It's all about finding that inter- internal motivation to learn something else instead of grabbing the bottle because it's very easy to self-medicate when something is so quickly reacted in our body. And the same thing is with money scripts, you know, changing those things and like you said finding that balance, it's difficult acknowledging that, hey, maybe I have something that I can work on, but just knowing what else is out there. I think a lot of people just don't know what else is out there. What can I do about my overspending? What can I do about my hoarding? What can I do about you know, signing up for another credit card and maxing it out. And that that's the that's the beauty of what we're trying to do here, obviously, is we're trying to help people find some alternative routes and maybe gain some control in a more healthy manner. Yeah, and the environment we're in right now with the uncertainty surrounding the COVID-19 coronavirus and the real legitimate economic hardship that people are experiencing, this is a time where financial stress is particularly high. So it means that addressing a money script is going to be all the more difficult because when you're stressed, you're probably, you don't really have the, I don't know, the mental willpower or whatever terminology we might want to use to be able to address 
a gambling disorder, an overspending problem, maxing out another credit card, etc. So it's uh, maybe not a perfect time to discuss this in a sense, because right now, if people are stressed, people have lost a lot of jobs, especially hourly workers, which is which is troublesome and difficult. It's going to be really tough in a time of uncertainty. And this this situation we're in right now is going to rewrite or introduce scripts to people about money that are going to be really difficult to change because the the higher the the stress surrounding something the the more our brains will tend to go on autopilot so the harder it is going to be to change so in one way it's probably an ideal time to be to be discussing this and another it's maybe the hardest time for some people to actually think about what their scripts are that they might not even be aware of and then to start changing unwinding to be able to help Absolutely. So to kind of bust into it, our our friend Dr. Brad Klontz and his father, Dr. Ted Klontz, have identified four different categories in which money disorders exist. Now, there are what, Ron, like what, 12, 13 money disorders that he's labeled and put into four different groups? Something like that. Yeah. Yep. And so those groups are money avoidance, money worship, money status, and money vigilance. And then again, within those four broader categories are more specific money disorders in which these money scripts of ours reside. Does everyone follow that, right? So we money scripts are what we tell ourselves about money, which can be categorized into money disorders, which can be broadened into larger categories of these four that I just mentioned. So avoidance, worship, status, and vigilance. Ron, you want to specify about what each of those are a little bit more? Sure, yeah. So money avoidance is basically the the overarching script, and there can be many other subscripts, I guess, within the money avoidance category. But the basic script within money avoidance is that money is bad. So folks that tend to hold this script, they believe they don't deserve money. They might believe that wealthy people are greedy, corrupt, They might believe that there is virtue in living with less money. If you're a money avoider, you might give away money because you don't want to hold on to it because of that underlying belief that money is bad and it's better to maybe live with less money. So if you exhibit money avoidance scripts, you might try not to think about money. You might ignore financial statements. You might overspend. You might enable others financially, um, have difficulty with a budget, etc. So yeah, money avoidance basically says that money is bad. I don't deserve it. It's better if I have less. So if I, some people that tend to come into money, they might get an inheritance. They might, I don't know, get a large bonus, somehow come up with a large sum of it. They might tend to try and give it away quickly because they feel like they don't deserve it. Yeah, I I think of one particular example. I believe I've talked about it on the show before. In the money, oh my goodness, in the book, Money, Mind Over Money, sorry. In the book, Mind Over Money, oh, which Ron has right here as in why we're recording by, again, Dr. Brad and Ted Klontz. There is a story in there of a woman whose husband was killed in the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and she received a large lump sum of money that he had, you know, through the retirement, through his death, through everything, and it was in the millions of dollars, and within just a few years, she had spent it immediately because she hated the idea of that money and what that represented, in yeah, her, she in felt it was blood money in yeah, a sense. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. these, uh, again, these scripts and these uh, disorders can 
I mean, they can service in immediate times of trauma and yeah, so moving forward. Yeah, so again, some of the scripts associated with money avoidance, I do not deserve a lot of money when others have less than me. Um, rich people are greedy. People get rich by taking advantage of others. Those kind of scripts, while there are ways in which those are true, they're not true all the time. So again, it's the brain is trying to make sense of the world. Maybe a money avoidance type of general set of scripts can come from a financial flashpoint. And we have an episode on basically like financial trauma. And those types of events, such as a husband dying can be a really unfortunate circumstance. And those flashpoints can result in money scripts because you want to do everything you possibly can to avoid that thing happening again in the future. So you might develop a really easy shortcut to say, well, I don't deserve money. Money is bad. I shouldn't have it because of the response to a really difficult event or series of events or you know, a tough upbringing or, or whatever it might be. Absolutely. So moving on, money worship. This uh, this is a bit self-explanatory, but Ron, go ahead. Sure. It's money worship. Yeah. And a lot of what I'm grabbing is coming from, um, again, the Klontz. It's a, called the Klontz Money Script Inventory. So Andy and I both took this series of about 30 or so statements that you say you agree or disagree with to varying degrees. So I'm taking a lot of my information from the results of this. So money worshipers, this is actually probably the most common one in the United States, where money worshipers believe that the key to happiness and the solution to their problems is to have more money. At the same time, they believe that one can never have enough money and find that the pursuit of money never quite satisfies them. So if you score high in the money worship category, you're more likely to have a lower net worth and carry credit card debt. You're prone to buying things in an attempt to achieve happiness. You're more likely to put work ahead of family. So there's this is where the workaholism tendency can potentially come from. And you might give or loan money to others even though you can't afford to do so as a way of kind of signaling that you have a lot of money or that it's so important so it makes you feel important if you can give a lot of it away yeah i was pretty happy that was my lowest one that (laughs) that was actually that was my lowest one too and maybe i was trying to avoid that one or something like Mm. that when i was filling it out because i don't want to be seen that way but maybe the real score is probably higher but i i did score lower on that one you know interesting interesting uh i took a whole class over assessments a whole class over like psychological assessments which uh was taught by the wonderful dr bjornson and in that you know we talked about how when we take tests that other people are going to see the results of, we tend to have this biased effect to where we tend to try to score a little bit better. Or so, as she said in the class, uh, you know, a room full of, you know, student counselors, we tended, anytime we took like a career inventory, we always tried to, we, we would tend to answer questions a little bit more heavily toward, oh, I think this is what a counselor would say, not necessarily what I would say. So I always, I said it one time in class, I said, 
why don't we have somebody that knows us extremely well take tests for us and maybe just didn't be as unbiased as possible because it'd be very interesting to have mm. like my wife or a very very close friend or even you ron like take take this test for me and i would take that one for you and and just see those results like well this is what i see ron as or this is what ron would see me as just yeah. a it's an interesting little side yeah tidbit yeah it would be interesting yeah, one of the reasons we like this script and I kind of looked into the background of it is because it does have various measures of statistical reliability. So, you know, if you take a Facebook quiz that asks what, you know, Harry Potter uh, Hogwarts house, you, house you might end up in, um, that's not necessarily going to have any predictive value for certain types of behaviors, although maybe that one does. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know about the efficacy of those types of quizzes, but... This one, the Klontz money script inventory, does have um, some predictive value in terms of what you said, income, net worth, financial behaviors, other types of financial health elements. For all, and for all you uh, research nerds out there, and I only know this because I've been studying for another licensing exam, they, uh, these, these, these do have uh, good reliability as far as you know, pr predictive, or not predictive, is that predictive reliability? Maybe I need to study that part more. Anyway, but this test is valid and reliable. It's, uh, it's been used many, many, many times. It's been used in research. So it's got some validity and got some reliability. That's right. Yeah. So moving on, we've got, or wait, do we want to, are we done with money worship? I think so. Okay. Next one is money status. Ron, why don't you give a go on money status? Yeah. The, this is the third of basically the three kind of most troublesome scripts, I would guess the final one, money vigilance has some positive correlations with it. Um, so this is the, this is the one that I scored the highest on kind of in the mid range of the scoring um, indicators that shows that I have a tendency to exhibit some of the characteristics of this one. Yep. And that was, that was the same for me. This was my highest one. It wasn't past the point of like, Hey, you should probably see somebody about it, but it was definitely like, Hey, you have some characteristics. So be, right. be diligent about them. Right. Right. So money status seekers, they tend to link their self-worth with their net worth. They may prioritize outward displays of wealth. And as a result can be at risk of overspending they may believe that if they live a virtuous life, the universe will take care of their financial needs. Um, many in this category grew up in a lower socioeconomic environment and or a household that prioritized the financial aspects of social standing. So if you score high in the money status category, you're more prone to overspending, gambling excessively, being financially dependent on others, uh, hiding expenditures from your spouses or the types of behaviors that might be associated with a money status type of script. And I feel that. And from my uh, personal life, I've definitely been an overspender in the past. And when we have a, a wealth of, of money, I like to, hey, let's let's have some fun. Let's go. Let's uh, let's go nuts, which I've had to be again. I've had to be vigilant about in order to. OK, no. Have we have we put in savings? Have we put in retirement? Have we you know, I have to start asking myself those questions when those are taken care of. Then like Ramit says, hey, you've got that money. Spend it. Let's have some fun. Mm -hmm. You know, enjoy life. Yeah, the way I think this is kind of manifested for myself is in the the rare occasion where I've heard a close friend maybe say, hey, I've got this much saved up in retirement. That's where I think this script really comes in heavily for me is 
I'll immediately start comparing myself to the other person and mm-hmm. kind of judging my level of success or status based on where I stand compared to that person. So in some cases, it's I have less in retirement savings than other people, and it makes me feel inferior, or I have a lot more, which of course gives a, a heavy dose of superiority feeling in my mind. So I think that's probably how I exhibit this script the most is in comparing myself to others, which is a something almost everyone does. In oh one my way. goodness. Yep. Yeah. If you ever find yourself saying I should do this or I must do this or I, or I, yeah, if you find yourself saying should a lot, stop shooting your pants and start understanding that, Hey, you are your own person. Much like my daughter was listening to Daniel Tiger this morning, Daniel Tiger was comparing himself because he couldn't jump over the pile of leaves in the episode episode, but all of his friends could. And so he he started getting really upset with himself. And again, this is this is why I think Fred Rogers just created this incredible, incredible culture of like, hey, we need to own these kind of things. We need to teach our kids that it's okay to to be who they are, you know, and just because they can't jump over the pile of leaves. But, but like kind of like these money scripts are, are are manifested inside of us. I mean, we learn these things when we're super young. We're learning to compare ourselves to other people when we're super young. If we can own those things and help our own kids start to realize like, hey man, you know, I could tell Brenna, like, it's okay that you can't run as fast as this person. It's okay that you know, this person might have these fun toys because you still have a lot of good things. And it's, it's good to to understand that you are your own person. Like I said, these things start young, dude. (laughs) Oh yeah. I was the type of person, especially in high school to, man, I would compare myself to every single person, especially the people that I really admired, the, the kids who had the most friends, the ones that were the most popular, the most well-liked, you know, might be voted, homecoming king or something like that mm-hmm. um i was constantly wanting to to be in that same level of mm-hmm. you know social um respect and admiration so i've come by it just probably that's another way where that's manifested itself in how i spend and save money i think i talked about this maybe on the first episode i like to wear nicer clothes, if I'm going to have a bias towards buying clothing that is nicer, looks better, has a certain label on it because of, I think, some of those money status mm-hmm. underlying scripts that I have. Oh, and I, I'm I'm still guilty of comparing myself to other things. Our friends over at the Millennial Mental Health Channel, they've experienced like just a, a wildfire of good new downloads. They've been talking and I'm like, man, how you know, what, what are, what are we doing? Like, why can't we get, you know? And, and so it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, Ron and I, we, we love having these conversations. We love creating this content, you know, for whomever wants to listen. And so I need to constantly ground myself and remind myself, Hey, you know, we're still having a good time just hanging out and being able to create something even for, you know, even if only a couple people get something out of it, Mm -hmm. it's still enjoyable to do. Yep. And I have the same type of pitfalls too with it. I, as a result, I try to just avoid looking at all of our analytic and listen counts and all that (laughs) type of information. Which, uh, awesome. Uh, Justin and Eddie over at the Millennial Mental Health Channel, uh, you guys are doing a fantastic job. You have a truly great show. So good on you for that. 
So the last one we have is money vigilance, and then we're going to get into some actionable steps as far as what you can do about these things. Yeah, so the money vigilant type of scripts, these are actually the ones that tend to be correlated with higher levels of wealth and success financially, um, but it can also result in anxiety about how you spend it or folks that reach retirement that they've been saving and saving and saving and saving for so many years and then they have to start spending it that can be an immense stress point for people because if you're a diligent saver um, maybe folks that did come out of a, a huge financial flashpoint with the depression in the 19th late 1920s and 1930s or maybe your parents or grandparents grew up and passed down those those generational scripts that's one of the kind of characteristics of a money script is they are passed down from generation to generation if you're money vigilant you might have better good financial outcomes that's great but it it can be stressful and create some anxiety for people as well the money vigilant are alert, watchful, concerned about their financial health. They believe it's important to save. They believe it's important for people to work for their money and not be given financial handouts. So generally good things, right? Um, they're more likely to be associated with higher levels of financial wealth, as we said, less likely to buy on credit. That's a good behavior. A tendency to be anxious about their financial future. So that motivates them to save. Let's see what else we have here. There's a tendency to be discreet with their financial status with others, which is something we see frequently in the United States is a tendency to not talk about money situations with other people. Money vigilant folks are less likely to keep financial secrets from their partners. Another good behavior encourages saving for frugality, but can lead to excessive wariness or anxiety that can prevent someone from enjoying the sense of security that they've built up from saving over the years. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a lot of savings build up. You can, of course, be money vigilant and not have a lot of savings, especially if you're starting off earlier in your career. You might still have student loan debt, whatever the case might be. So uh, money vigilance, I would say, is the most positive of these four. If you have these characteristics, you'll probably be okay. I think Andy and I both scored in the somewhat range where we have some of the characteristics of someone who's money vigilant. So some good financial outcomes, that, but also can have some stress associated with it. Oh, yeah. I definitely have anxiety around spending and, and saving and making sure we're, I'm being very vigilant about those things, almost to a, a fault. If you talk to my wife, she'd be like, oh, my gosh, are we fine? Are we not fine? Just tell me because I go back and forth so much. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, let's get into ways that we can... Uh, that we can do something about it. So first and foremost, if you want to take this assessment, all you have to do is go to www.yourmentalwealth.com slash assessment. And we'll put that in the show notes. But again, that's www.yourmentalwealth.com slash assessment. Now, when I work with patients, when I work with clients, you know, the first thing that we talk about is, you know, what is going on? I mean, I, I ask them right away. I, I don't want to assume I know what's going on in their life. I want to, I could read, you know, the countless notes on our patients that we have. But one of the things that I really want to do when we start out is, okay, what are we dealing with? So first and foremost, take that assessment, find out what you're dealing with, find out what some of those issues are. So if you do have those and you can acknowledge them, then we can really start to do 
some work, one of the things that I like to do with patients understanding, because so many of these are a narrative that's been written in their life, uh, there's there's something out there called narrative therapy, and it's all about rewriting the narrative. So understanding where these came from, what you have done in the past, and what you can do to rewrite those instances so they're, they have a different outcome in the future. And it's literally all about like telling a story of something about what else could happen. Yeah, scripts in, of, in and of themselves are kind of stories that we tell themselves. So if we can rewrite it, we can start to change our behavior around it. The money script inventory for whatever that's worth will, again, we'll have the link for it. It's a series of 32 statements where you say, I strongly disagree to a scale of I strongly agree with this. And they're one sentence statements, something such as like, people get rich by taking advantage of others. It is hard to be poor and happy. Do you agree with this statement? I will not buy something unless it is new, like a car or a house. The The degree to which you agree or disagree with those is the entire diagnostic and it's 32 statements it takes about five minutes you know you try to answer as quickly as you can to get your initial gut reaction to it to have a an accurate assessment yeah and and be honest with yourself that's the best thing that you can do in oh shoot i mean pretty much in life just be if you're if you're going to take this assessment just be as honest as you can don't answer how you how you'd like to answer or like to be, you know, we talked about the difference between true and ideal self. Say, stay as true as you can. You know, if you're if you're taking this seriously and you want to make some good positive changes in your life, you got to be honest with yourself. So, um, yeah, and you'll you'll get results in an email within minutes after taking the inventory. And I'm just basically reading some of the information we have from the email that I received after taking the mm-hmm. script inventory. So. You'll, you'll get some tips within that email response that are that are pretty helpful. Yeah. One of the things that I did want to throw out, my buddy Mike, he, um, uh, not the smoke and meat Mike, different Mike. There are a lot of Mikes in my life. Same with Nick's. A lot of Nick's and Mike's in my life. It's almost as if it's a just a popular name. And Very popular name. Not yeah. like Ron. That's a lame name. Pretty lame. <laughs> Um, but I got to throw this out. I've been using this in group therapy. It's called the, we've dubbed it the Potter wall of trauma. Okay. And I wish I would have used this in our trauma episode. I'm kicking myself. No, Mike Potter. (laughs) Anyway, still very cool. Anyway, it is not less cool than Harry Potter. This helps people run. So does Harry Potter. Not like not like the seventh movie part one where they're pretty much just camping the whole stinking time. Some people need to camp to get oh away. Oh my gosh. But the whole time. Solitude is good. Sometimes. Solitude is good for like maybe 10 minutes of the movie. Anyway, Potter Wall of Trauma. <laughs> um, hey, hey, we got to give Ron that uh, that uh, bonus point. He, he, We got a movie reference down. One nice. that you understood. Look at you. Add that to your bingo card. <laughs> Um, Potter wall of trauma, basically it's the idea that we all start with a foundation when we're born and, uh, some people's foundations are a little, uh, they could be cracked 
at born at, at being at time of birth, geez, simply because of maybe they had a parent with substance use, maybe there's some epigenetics. I'm not going to go into details about those, but the idea is that every life experience that we have is like a brick in this wall. Okay. So as we have life experiences, we put bricks within our walls and some of the bricks are a little bit different, misshapen, you know, different negative or positive experiences. But when we had trauma to that, such as a pandemic, such as a 9-11 terrorist attack, such as a depression, such as a stock market um, downturn, what happens in that wall as we're building it with these normally or abnormally shaped bricks is we throw a boulder in there. And then if we're not dealing with that boulder, all we start to do is we start to add more bricks. And when we start to try to pile those bricks on top of that boulder, obviously we're going to have a misshapen wall. So every one of those life experiences that we're trying to build upon that boulder are then inadvertently affected. And that's how kind of those money scripts play out in our everyday life. Does that make sense? Yeah. I always appreciate the visuals that you can bring to this because I know you're doing that within your sessions, but also doing it you know, on an audio format where people can't, they can't (laughs) see us, but you provide some good visuals like that that I think are helpful. Well, hey, again, I throw that out to my buddy, Mike. Uh, Thank you for that. And uh, if anyone wants any more information about that, I can absolutely, um, you know, send us an email, send us a message, what have you. So that is, uh, anyway, so the idea behind that is if you want to have more folk trauma focused therapy, it's all about kind of experiencing taking those life experiences down. And in order to deal with that trauma, sometimes you have to break some of that wall down in order to get to that trauma and then cope with that. I think the single most important thing with your scripts is to be aware of them. And that's also maybe one of the most difficult parts of this is because a lot of our money scripts and scripts in general are so subconscious, it's hard to be aware of them. And sometimes that's where a therapist can help draw them out. Or you can take something like a, an inventory that will give you some results to help you be aware of the scripts that you might hold. But just being aware of them can help if, if you're someone who has experienced or especially is currently experienced a lot of financial stress to be aware of how, oh, I hold these subconscious ideas about money. That might be why I'm feeling this way. What can I do to start changing it? You can't begin to start changing it unless you're aware of what the script actually is. So while it's not easy to figure out what that script is, to become aware of it will be the single most important thing you can do to start to change the the stresses and difficulties that you're having surrounding your money. Yeah, and I, I want to go back to the egg analogy simply because, you know, we, we can talk and talk and talk and talk about, Hey, here are things you can do here are things, you know, whatever. But like, I'm going to let you know, first and foremost, that if you start to apply any of the things that we've ever talked about, it's going to be uncomfortable. And that's, that's the same thing. Like anyone who works out will tell you that you're, you're going to have some muscle pain because your muscles are tearing to allow for more repair to build upon those muscles. The same thing happens with your mind. When you start introducing new and, and sometimes very complicated or difficult issues, it's, it's going to be tough. I mean, goodness, right now I'm, I'm in the process of picking a therapist because I've been out of therapy for myself for so long. I have a list of, I think, 10 therapists that are EAP at our, job 
allows us to use. And just looking at that list and trying to make that call is a difficult thing because I know that when I get into that therapy session that I have to start looking at myself and understanding, ooh, I have to change some of these not good things about myself. So just owning that, it's not going to be easy. So I want everyone to know right now that listens, if you are going through some changes in your life or you want to start making some changes, just know it's going to be uncomfortable. You might have stomach aches. You might have headaches. You might have some of those issues, those somatic symptoms that are associated with intense change. And what I'd say is is we have to learn to embrace that. We have to learn to accept that. We have to learn to you know, tolerate that distress, which is a, a DBT model. So give it to yourself, understand that you're, and, and the other thing is you'll probably fail at this. You're probably going to fail. The other thing that I want to tell you is that that doesn't make you a failure. That means that you've, you're trying something brand new that you're probably not going to do correct right away. And it might take a few shots. Okay. That doesn't make you at your core a bad person. That just means you messed up and we got to try it again. One of the other things that I I talk about the cognitive model, and this is something I walk through my patients. So if you're taking notes, write down the word situation, write an arrow to the word now thoughts, write an arrow to the word emotion, and then write an arrow to the word behavior. So a situation produces a thought that we have about that situation, which produces an emotion about that situation, which then produces how we behave about that. We can change our thoughts, which change our emotions, which change our behavior. So you have to start challenging some of those thoughts or those scripts if you want to start changing some of that behavior. I don't think I can add anything to that. It's a really good <laughs> summation and s- series of steps that we can take. And I, I do like I do like the approach of just being real with people and saying that this is going to be tough. Yeah. Because if something sounds too good to be true, here's a script. If something sounds to be true, too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. And um, that script doesn't apply in all situations. But when it comes to money, when it comes to changing behavior usually there aren't any really quick and easy solutions. Otherwise, we probably would have taken those steps already. (laughs) But yeah, just knowing that it's going to be tough, I think, I don't know, I, I think that is helpful in a way. Oh, yeah. So one of the other things, if you want to know why you think the way that you think, make a genogram. And genograms can be um, exhaustive. They can be really, really, really big. They can also be really simple. Uh, Genograms, if you want to know how to make one, you can look it up online. Or what you do is you basically put yourself in the middle You put your siblings next to you. You draw a line to each of the siblings. Then you draw a line on top of yourself. And then you draw and then you put your parents in there. And then, uh, you know, you can put your grandparents in there. And what I want you to do is I want you to focus around kind of like, what did your parents say about money? And then what did your grandparents say about money? You can kind of really start to figure out kind of how you view money and why you view the money the way that you do. Maybe your grandparents were depression era. Maybe they were, maybe you're a bit younger and they're Gen Xers. Who knows? I don't, you know, whoever is listening to this, but understanding where some of these money scripts came from can be really helpful to start tackling them. Some people are just like, nope, don't care about where they came from. Let's just start figuring out how I don't have these anymore. Yeah, that's that's another approach. And then lastly, I'll just tell you, you know, what need are you fulfilling 
by viewing the by viewing money the way that you do again what need are you fulfilling by viewing money the way that you do so if you are one that is extremely frugal you know and and you hate to spend money and you 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 have a ton of anxiety around spending money you know what what are you maybe what are you maybe protecting yourself from Maybe a financial downturn, something like that. If you were somebody that is just going nuts and spending, 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 you know, what are you, uh, what are you trying to spend yourself away from? You know, try to embrace that discomfort, understand where that discomfort comes from. But other than that, I got about a million other things that I could say, but you know, we're trying to keep these episodes under 45. Sure. So. Yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. Andy, how's your pandemic situation going? Oh, it's not too bad. Go to work the next couple of days and just trying to keep our patients, uh, you know, calm throughout this whole thing, trying to keep them educated about what the virus is doing and, you know, just uh, doing what we can to, to be with people. Yeah, we do have some legislation from the federal government that hasn't passed yet as of March 25th when we're recording, but there is a chance that individuals and households will actually get some money, maybe $1,200 per person that kind of caps out depending on your level of income, and then $500 per child. So certain households could get a, a nice boost. And I think that's honestly, I think that's great Yeah, <laughs> that people could be actually getting some money put into their bank accounts from the federal government to help them through this time. I mean, what's going to be the thing that's going to jumpstart the economy again? It's going to be getting the virus out and then it's going to be having people with the ability to start spending and consuming again. So absolutely, we'll see how that goes. We're not sure where, where it's at or if it'll pass, but my prediction is that something will happen so that people will actually get kind of like a tax refund that they didn't expect, which is nice. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, if you enjoy the show, please uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes. Please share with a friend. That'll do it for us today. Thank you for listening to Money and the Mind. Mm -hmm.